This morning we are continuing our study of the book of Genesis in chapters uh, 31 and 32, if you want to begin turning there. And we're going to be talking about change. Perhaps you've heard it said that a leopard can't change its spots. But what about people? That's our question for this morning. I stole our sermon title from one of the most beautiful, powerful verses in all of Scripture. I hope many of you will already have it memorized. If you don't, I hope you will after the end of today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If you know it, you can say it with me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Now, that did not get nearly enough amens at the end of it. So I'm going to try it again together. Would you say it with me? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Amen? That's more like it. Christian, if you are in Christ this morning, if you have by repentance been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, and have by faith been raised with Christ to newness of life, that's Romans 6.4, that means that when the Almighty God now looks at you, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done in your life, he no longer sees a sinner, he sees a saint. He no longer sees your brokenness, he sees your beauty. He doesn't look at you with disapproval, he looks at you with delight. Because when God now looks at you, he no longer sees you, he sees Jesus. For all who are in Christ, God sees us no longer as dressed in the filthy rags of our sin, but as dressed in all the splendor and righteousness of Christ. The rest of 2 Corinthians 5 reads, For our sake God made Christ to be sin, though he knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Christianity in the Bible this morning. The old has gone, behold, the new really has come. Now, I wish we could just stop right there. It would be a very short sermon. But the problem is that you and I have a really hard time actually living in the light of this glorious new reality of who we now are in Christ. We all suffer from visual impairment, don't we? Spiritual vision impairment. If we could just see ourselves the way that God now sees us. All those truths, we just resounded together. I'm chosen. I'm not forsaken. I'm welcomed. I'm loved. I'm set free. I'm a child of God. If we could just live like that all the time, like the new creations that Christ has made us, transformed us to be, we'd be fine. But like the beggar-turned-prince who was adopted by the king, but who keeps forgetting his new identity, royalty, and sneaks out of the castle to go beg at the city gates, we all suffer from spiritual amnesia. 
And no matter how filthy we now know in our heads those old beggars' rags to be in our sin, we are still tempted continually to try and trade the royal robe of Christ's righteousness for rags. As they say, you can take the beggar out the streets. It's much harder to take the streets out of the beggar. Now, what does any of this have to do with Genesis? This morning in Genesis 31 and 32, we find three core truths on full display in the life of the patriarch Jacob and in the various supporting actors and actresses here, Rachel and Laban, Esau. And I want to give you those three main points from your bulletin right up front. Number one, we struggle, you and I, to leave the past behind. Number two, we struggle to believe that the past is truly behind us. And number three, despite that, God makes us new. For starters, you and I, Jacob and Rachel, we all have parts of our past that if we are really honest, we don't want to leave behind. If Jesus would only give us the option of following him while also continuing to date that person, to pursue that career, to binge watch that show, to spend our free time on those activities, to treat our enemies that way, we would do it. Because in our sin, frankly, we don't want to change certain parts of our past. Now, on the flip side, secondly, also like Jacob, there are other parts of our past that we desperately want to leave behind, but we fear that we can't. We want to put that death, that trauma, that sexual assault, that spiritual abuse, that pre-extramarital affair, that divorce, we want to put it behind us. But it seems so big, so egregious, so life-defining we have trouble believing that it could ever be our past instead of our present. It feels like it's always doomed to be there, lingering, following us wherever we go, and determining our future as well. But, but point number three, we opened with the gospel, and you're going to have to wait a long time till the end of the message to end with the gospel as well, the good news that in spite of both the past that we want to leave behind but can't seem to, as well as the past that we've been called to leave behind but haven't been obedient to do so, listen, God makes us new. No matter your past this morning, God is offering you new life in His Son, Jesus if you will but surrender to him by faith this morning. Let's go to him now in prayer together. Father, we need so much more than a little grace, than your help becoming slightly better versions of ourselves. We need newness. 
We need death to life, lost to found, blind but now we see, spiritual rebirth kind of newness. God, we come to you this morning confessing once again, we, we don't have that kind of power in us. Despite what the multi-billion dollar self-help industry would have us believe, we can't shake this perpetual nagging notion, feeling, realization that we really don't have the courage, the strength, the fortitude, the power to change our own spots, to make ourselves into the people we want to be and, and that you want us to be. We need help. We need a Savior. Father, I thank you that you have provided just such a Savior for us this morning who has the power to redeem, to change, to transform, to declare, behold, the old has gone. It's finished. It's history. Leave it there. The new has come. We need newness in Christ this morning. So I pray that you would show us Jesus in the Old Testament. Show us Jesus in these obscure stories from Genesis 31 and 32. We don't need information. We need transformation. We don't need more head knowledge about you. We need you. We need you to touch our hearts this morning. Would you do it, Holy Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Main point number one this morning, we struggle to leave the past behind. We struggle to leave the past behind. We pick back up in Genesis 31, verse 1. <clears throat> we hear now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Now, you remember last week, chapter 30, God has been blessing Laban simply because Jacob was living with him. But Laban was hoarding all the wealth. And so God appeared to Jacob in a dream, and he told him to propose uh, Laban this ridiculous deal that should have resulted in Laban getting even more wealthy, cheating Jacob out of even more of his wages. But instead, God worked miraculously to bless Jacob with an abundance of Laban's sheep and flocks, goats. But neither Uncle Laban nor his sons, who now feel robbed out of their inheritance, are very happy about this. And so we hear in verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Last week, again, God worked in spite of Leah and Rachel and Jacob's faithlessness, their superstitious idolatry, to fulfill God's promise to Jacob of a people. Eleven sons and counting now, and of prosperity, all this wealth. And the third patriarchal promise of Genesis 28 was a people, prosperity, and a place, namely the promised land, Canaan. Jacob has been sojourning in Mesopotamia now for 20 long years, but God is finally saying it's time to go home. And Jacob, to his credit, has no trouble leaving this part of his past behind him. Anybody live with their in-laws for 20 years? Okay. 
for Jacob, Uncle Laban, he fits squarely in this category number two of your outline. Jacob would love nothing more than to leave Laban behind, but as we will see, he just can't seem to shake him. Verse four, so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, and yet your father has cheated me, changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes. I saw in a dream that the goats that made it in the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Back in chapter 28. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Jacob has been putting up with Laban's shenanigans for 20 years. He's served Laban for seven years to marry his daughter Rachel, only to discover that Laban had tricked him, pulled old switcheroo on his wedding night. He married Leah instead, accidentally, so he had to serve another seven years for Rachel, and then another six and counting now, because simply Laban knows that Jacob is good luck, and he won't let him leave, but Jacob is ready to go, and the sister wives are ready to go too. Verse 14, then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father now belongs to us and our children, Jacob. Now then, whatever God has said to you, Jacob, do. All that prosperity that God had brought Laban's way for Jacob's sake, it was supposed to have served as a dowry for Leah and Rachel, Laban was supposed to save it in the event that Jacob died or divorced them so that he could take care of his daughters, but Laban has selfishly devoured it instead, their, their inheritance, their dowry. And so Leah and Rachel say, look, what's keeping us here anymore? Let's go. And so verse 17, Jacob arose and set his sons and wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock and his property, all that he had gained, the livestock and his possession, all that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Now, this is where things get interesting. Verse 19, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stole her father's household gods. Some commentators suggest that these teraphim, household gods, would determine the rightful heir of the family inheritance. But Rachel has already told us that Laban blew through all the inheritance. Other commentators suggest that possessing these gods, idols, would have conveyed some sense of authority or control, that that's what's going on here. I think the best interpretation, given both what we know from the archaeological remains of ancient teraphim as well as what we know of Rachel's character, is that these were fertility gods and goddesses that Rachel believed might somehow help her with that added son. Remember her naming of Joseph, her firstborn, last week. May God add to me another son. Rachel wants a second child, and Leah's mandrakes didn't help. 
back in chapter 30. And so now she's turning to Laban's idols instead. The past is hard to leave behind indeed. And speaking of not leaving one's waywardness behind, verse 20, Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. Here's Jacob, the heel grabber, the supplanter, the trickster, back up to his old deceitful ways. <clears throat> he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So, verse 22, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen and pursued him for seven days followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Verse 25, and Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban, with his kinsmen, had pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre? Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Can hardly get through it with a straight face. Laban, more than anyone, Laban proves that you really cannot teach some old dogs new tricks. He has proven himself thus far to be a master manipulator, but he's all out of tricks here. Jacob is holding all of the cards. Laban knows it. I mean, if there was ever a time for repentance, for, for, for honesty, for change, to drop the charade and finally admit, listen, Jacob, I screwed up. I, I abused you. I took God's favor, not to mention my, my own daughters and my, my grandkids for granted. C can you find it in your heart to forgive me? If there was ever a time, never mind the fact that God had come to him and directly warned him not to say anything, but Laban just can't help himself. He can't shake his old ways, and he's desperate. So he plays the only card he's got left up his swindling sleeve, the martyr card. How could you, Jacob? You kidnap my daughters? He must have not read verse 15, where they can't wait to get away from him. Jacob, you tricked me. He says it twice. I, I can't believe you tricked me. Coming from the guy who switched brides, Jacob's wedding night, the guy who fraudulently changed poor Jacob's wages ten times. Jacob, you didn't even let me throw you a going away party. Maybe because the last time Jacob asked Laban about leaving, he ended up six years a slave. But now he's all out of cards. Laban just outright threatens Jacob. Verse 29, it is in my power, you know, to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? This is 
the first legitimate question that Laban asked Jacob. Look, if you wanted to go home so badly, back to your father, back to your father's gods, let me just ask you one last question, Jacob. Why'd you steal my gods? And Jacob is so taken aback that he starts addressing Laban's earlier complaints before that question about the gods even registers with him. Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. You weren't going to throw me a party. Wait, gods? What, what gods? Verse 32, anyone with whom you find your gods, we'll just kill them. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. But verse 32, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. He's at risk here of losing the most important thing to him, Rachel, because of his rashness. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he didn't find them. And so he went out of Leah's tent, entered Rachel's. Everybody catch, hold your breath. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them probably just a carpet. Laban felt all about the tent, but he didn't find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. And so he searched, but did not find the household gods. Now, it's possible that Rachel is herself lying here, being deceitful. But personally, I like to believe that she's telling the truth. That God is, is using the very thing that Rachel hates and fears most in the world every month, her period, to save her life. Because that's the kind of God we serve, redemptive God who works all things, all things, even periods for infertile women together for good. I also love the irony of Rachel menstruating all over her fertility gods. <laughs> it's as if God is saying, let me show you exactly what I think of those so-called gods of yours, Rachel. And that is also, by the way, the kind of God that we serve who unapologetically commands us, you shall not have any other gods but me. Now, Jacob could just say, look, no teraphim here. Can we just go now, please? Part our ways. But like Rachel with her idolatry and Laban with his manipulation, Jacob too, we see, has trouble leaving his past behind here, his old ways. Jacob always has to have the upper hand. You know, that was sort of his MO, whether it was asserting himself over against Esau for the birthright or over against Isaac for the blessing or over against Laban in the previous chapter in the livestock birth wars. Jacob always has to have the upper hand, and so he just can't help himself here. He's been bottling this up for 20 years. This is it. It's coming to the surface. He gets angry and berates Laban, and finally, I'm going to put him in his place. Verse 36, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? You've felt through all my goods, torn my camp upside down. 
What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats, they haven't miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks that I was entitled to as your shepherd. What was torn by wild beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hands you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me. By night uh, the cold, and my sleep fled from my eyes. I haven't slept in 20 years. He's pouring it on thick. These 20 years I have been in your house. I've served you 14 for your two daughters and six years for your flock. You've changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac hadn't been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. This is a moving speech. Laban certainly deserved it. The only issue is that Rachel did actually steal the teraphim. But in his rush to put Laban in his place, Jacob didn't even bother to turn and ask his traveling party, hey, did anybody accidentally maybe pick up some little wooden statues when you were packing real quick and we could just sort that out so we can get this guy on his way? I'd never want to see him again. Instead, Jacob jumps straight to, we're going to kill the person. That's how much Jacob needed to prove his innocence, that he was in the right. Laban's response here, even the covenant that the two forge, it proves that Laban also is like Jacob. They're both deceivers. They both have to have the final word. Laban He's desperately trying to save face at this point. He knows he's beat, but Laban tries to take the moral high ground. This is just funny, again. Like Laban is the bigger man for backing down. Verse 43, Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters. The children, they're my children. The flocks are my flock. All that you see is mine. But I'm going to be the bigger man. What can I do this day for my daughters and for their children whom they have born? What's best for them? Like Laban cares. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. And so they do. They construct a little pillar to commemorate it. Verses 45 and following, they construct a heap of rocks. They even fight over the name of the memorial. It's all very petty and passive-aggressive. But then they eat a meal together, and finally, in verse 55, Laban departed and returned home. But I want you to see how chapter 32 opens. Listen, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him, just like they had on his way out of Canaan 20 years prior into Padanaram at Bethel, the angel staircase, you remember. But this time, verse 2 When Jacob saw the angels, he said, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of the place Mahanaim. Now, I've already said Hebrew names are significant. Mahanaim means two camps. Here's how I make sense of that. Abraham Lincoln once famously said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side because God is always right. 
Jacob, by contrast, in verse 2, rightly recognizes that this camp belongs to God. He has a decision here to make. Am I going to get on God's side? Join the camp. Fall in line. But he doesn't name it God's camp. He doesn't name it our camp. He names it two camps. In other words, God, I'm not so sure that I am fully on board with your camp yet. I think I'm going to camp separately. Still. He still hasn't fully surrendered and trusted God. And chapter 32 makes that abundantly clear. As we segue now to core truth number two for this morning. Like Jacob, you and I struggle to believe that our past is really behind us. Not only struggle to leave the past behind, we cling to our old ways like Jacob, Rachel, Laban, but we also struggle to believe that our past is behind, the parts of our past that we want to leave there, we struggle to believe that we can. For Jacob, this meant all the drama that he had hoped to leave behind in Canaan with his brother Esau. You recall that when we last heard from Esau back in chapter 27, he was daydreaming about all the different ways he would love to kill Jacob. Well, five chapters and 20 years later, Jacob is finally heading home now. When he had left home, his mother Rebekah had promised to send for Jacob just as soon as Esau's anger had subsided. Well, guess what? She never sent for him. He never got that memo. In fact, Rebekah has probably been dead for years at this point, and so Jacob has no way of knowing whether Esau has finally forgiven him or whether he's just been stewing for 20 years, plotting all sorts of new diabolical ways to exact his revenge. And so verse 3, we hear Jacob's response. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir. He doesn't pray. He doesn't go vertically. He goes horizontally. I'm going to send messengers to Esau, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. What's he doing here? Jacob is terrified. He doesn't know how Esau is going to receive him. So Jacob just throws the whole playbook at him. First, he attempts to butter him up. Make sure you call him Lord. Make sure he knows I think of myself as his servant. Even though I tricked him out of his birthright, he technically serves me. If that doesn't work, number two, pull the sympathy card. I've been sojourning for 20... Esau, I've been living out of a suitcase for 20 years. Please feel sorry for me and don't kill me. Mean old Uncle Laban. Feel sorry for me. And if that still doesn't work, strategy number three, bribe him. Did I mention my oxen? I've got donkeys. Let's talk. Flocks, servants, 
just let me find favor in your sight. But verse 6, it's not too hopeful. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, Oh, we came to your brother Esau. We found him. And he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. That doesn't sound good. It's just like your boyfriend or girlfriend tells you, we need to talk. We all know what that means, right? Jacob is pretty sure he knows what this means. Esau bringing a posse of 400 guys with him. It doesn't sound like a peace delegation. Verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, so he prayed. No, I'm just kidding. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two camps, thinking, hey, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp that is left will at least escape. At least I got a 50-50 shot here. Best odds I, I can see. He attacks the wrong camp first. They'll slow him down enough for the rest of us to get away. We'll put Leah over there. We never liked her anyway. Rachel, let's go. Over here. Now, to his credit, even though prayer is less than a first response, less of a first response than it is his last resort, Jacob does eventually finally turn to God in prayer here in verse 9. And as far as prayers go, this is actually pretty good one. You know, oftentimes the ones that come from such a place of desperation where we have nowhere left but God to turn to end up being pretty genuine prayers, don't they? Verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of the, all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan. Twenty years ago I was empty-handed. And now I've become two whole camps full of livestock and people. You've blessed me. But now please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children." But you said, I will surely do you good. I'll make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob does three things. He confesses his unworthiness. He throws himself on God's mercy. And number three, he, he pleads the promises of God. He prays God's promises back to him to do him good and to protect him. That's good. It's a good pattern for us to follow. But... Don't follow what he does next. Then, instead of trusting God, that God hears him, that God is going to make good on his promises, I got you. What does he do? Verse 13, so Jacob stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels or calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me. and Put a space between drove and drove. Separates them out. He, he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? Who are those ahead of you? Then you shall say they belong to your servant Jacob. They're a present 
sent to my Lord Esau. Moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed in droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. Wear him down with your generosity, your kindness. Butter him up. Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps then he will accept me. This is classic Jacob. It's very strategic from a worldly perspective. Not very faithful from a spiritual perspective. But all of this is building up to this climactic, enigmatic wrestling match at the end of chapter 32. Verse 22, we hear the same night Jacob arose, he took his wives, his two female servants, his 11 kids, crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them, sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. Finally, this is where God wants him, right? Where God can actually use him. Not trusting in his stuff, he's empty-handed. Not trusting in his clever schemes, he's out of tricks. He's all alone. He's in the middle of the desert. Sound familiar? Chapter 28. Rock for a pillow. Kind of a hard place. In desperate need once again. That is exactly where God loves to meet us the most, isn't it? At rock bottom. Verse 24. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the man said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, heel grabber, supplanter, trickster. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Israel, God wrestler. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, what in the world is going on here? told you it was enigmatic. I could preach, believe it or not, a whole sermon on just these 11, probably multiple sermons on these 11 verses. I'm going to spare you. There's a wealth, I'll give you the, the cliff notes, highlights. There's a wealth of wisdom worth our attention to be gleaned here, like the recognition that Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, actually shows up in the Old Testament. A man, 
verse 24, who is also God, verse 30. Man, God. Anybody else you know who fits that description? Or the truth that sometimes we think we need a hug from God, but what we really need is to be roughed up. Or the truth that when God roughs us up, he doesn't do it in order to prevail against us, verse 25, to prove his dominance, to put us in our place. No, God roughs us up to change us for the better, to deliver us. Or the truism that change hurts. God throws Jacob's hip out of socket here. Dan Allender wrote a book on Christian leadership entitled Leading with a Limp. Jacob has been leading with his strength for many years now, with his wealth, with his clever strategies. God says, Jacob, I'm going to break you so that I can prove that my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. Or the truth that wrestling is tiring, especially when you're wrestling with God. Yes, God wants us to engage with him in deep, personal, intimate, direct ways like this, but then God knows we're human, right? Need to go to bed, get a bite to eat, go to work. God says, Let me go, Jacob. It's daybreak. It's time for you to go face Esau. You can't stay here with me like this forever. You can't stay on the mountaintop experience or the valley. You know, most of life is lived in the mundane, and yet even when we're not actively duking it out with God, we can take heart because he promises I'm always with you. Or the point that wrestling with God is okay. Maybe that needs to be pointed out. Maybe maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. Jacob doesn't get reprimanded for fighting back. In fact, he gets rewarded for fighting with God. Let me ask you, do you believe that God is big enough to handle your honest questions and doubts of him this morning? If he's not, then I suggest you trade him in for a bigger God. My God, the God of the Bible, Jacob's God, he can handle your struggles, your wrestlings, your doubts. Another point, even when, especially when, it feels like you are just barely hanging on for dear life, that is precisely when you've got to cling to God the tightest. Jacob says, I'm not letting go. I've got nothing left here, no one else to turn to. If you don't come through for me here, God, I am dead. And that is precisely the kind of desperate, utter reliance on Christ that God, our Father, desires from us and blesses in us. Or how about the truism that you cannot have God on your own terms. Did you catch that? Jacob wants to know God's name. Again, this is Jacob again. Horizontal, like, I don't know if I can have the upper hand, but at least we've got to be on equal terms here. I, I told you my name. It's only fair. You've got to tell me your name, right? God says, that's no. It's not how it works with me. I name you. I bless you. 
relationship with me is on my terms, not yours. And it's for your good, Jacob. It's for your good that I call the shots. Or the recognition that Jews don't eat thigh meat. Lots of fun facts here. But more than any of those observations, here's what I want to pull out and highlight and end with this morning is that God makes us new. Come full circle. Jacob gets a new name here. This is, this is one of the most, again, bizarre but important stories in all of the Old Testament. This is where God's old covenant people get their very namesake is this story, Israel. God says, look, you're no longer going to be called heel grabber, striving, always trying to catch up and get ahead of horizontally. You've striven with men, now you have striven with God. You are Israel, God wrestler. Israel doesn't mean God follower because God knows they won't do that perfectly throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Israel doesn't even mean God believer because God's people will doubt him for thousands of years after this and go through cycles of distrusting him, failing him, falling away. And yet, they never stop wrestling. God doesn't expect. God knows we're sinful. He also knows we need him in our sin. We need to cling to him even when it's messy, not perfect, even when it means doubts and wrestling. We need to go to God. And when we do, here's God's promise. He will change us. When God changes us, it is always for the better. Jacob may walk away from this story limping, in, but in verse 30, he says, My life has been delivered, ransomed, redeemed. So let me close this morning by asking you personally, what parts of your past are you struggling to leave behind? Do you believe that new life in Christ is really available to you this morning? That you don't have to be the same old Jacob, the same old Laban, the same old Rachel, the same old fill-in-your-name that you've always been, and that Christ is better than whatever filthy rags you're leaving behind? Do you believe that? Number two, what parts of your past do you struggle to believe that God really can put behind you? Listen to what God promises you in his word. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Is that good news? You can trust in God's promise of forgiveness this morning. You can leave your past where it belongs because of Christ. And most importantly, number three, have you personally experienced God's death to life 
transformative power to make you new this morning. If you haven't, then hear his invitation to you once more today. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Amen. Let's pray.